God. But when you talk about hungry for God, uh, you know, one of the things that you start realizing is, is there's a, a widespread notion that the idea of taking your faith really seriously is something that you, know, you should be concerned about. And religious extremism is you know, a problem in the world. And because that, that whole idea isn't defined very carefully, it's really easy for us to you know, be influenced by maybe uh, not the sharpest thinking about that. But the truth is, we look around us, uh, people do crazy things in the name of God. We've all seen it. You know, every year we talk about 9-11. But the, uh, the Atlanta Olympic Village bombings in Atlanta were done by someone in the name of Jesus. And there's lots of things that are done in the name of God that are just alarming. You just go, wow, how could someone get so, um, take something that's so good and twist it? to such a degree that they end up there. And, and maybe, you know, you've experienced someone behaving in a way in the name of God that's really been hurtful to you. Uh, that's a, you know, that makes it even more, that brings it home, makes it something that's even more deeply personal in terms of your suspicion, maybe, of the old idea of being, being religiously zealous. And so, you know, the question I we put on the website was, do I need to be a religious fanatic to please God? Because some people who take their faith seriously would say yes, depending on how you define religious fanatic. Uh, the truth be told, you would think that God, looking at all this, wouldn't really want to encourage anyone in that direction. Because it seems like people take something good and they just push it further than it's meant to go, and it becomes something that's, that's hurtful and destructive. Uh, I think it would probably surprise you to know that, that the answer to that question is a qualified yes. Do I need to become a religious fanatic to please God? We want to define the term carefully, but the Apostle Paul, who was one of their early church leaders, and he wrote... Uh, a large part of the New Testament, which is what you know, churches really focus on reading and studying and trying to understand and apply, because you know, Jesus is the center of it. He said to some Christians in Rome, uh, who were pretty serious followers of Jesus, he said to them, never, well, let me, let me quote it exactly. He said, never be lacking in zeal, but keep a glow in the Spirit, serving the Lord. So he said, never be lacking in zeal. And now maybe you go, I'm not sure I'm willing to embrace that kind of urge and challenge. Because, you know, I've seen some bad things happen. Well, I think that's an honest response to that. And I think it's important, you know, for us not to ignore that, that uh, even in the church, people do some pretty extreme things. Uh, and that doesn't mean that, that they're motivated by God, clearly. And, and what he tells us in this one little short verse, it's chock full of insight about this whole question. But you have to understand, his lean, 
Catch the first clause of this again. Never be lacking in zeal. So he's saying we need to lean towards being passionate, spiritually passionate people. As long as you divine it carefully, that that is a really important way to live. And so I want to explore that for a minute today because when you will look a little bit at Paul's life and Paul personally was someone who would have been put in this category earlier in his life as a religious fanatic who caused so much harm and pain, it's hard to imagine that he, with that kind of background, would, would urge the followers of Jesus to be zealous because his zeal ended up with people dying and, and, and an incredible amount of pain being spread in the world among Christians because of his zeal against them. And so, it, you know, you read this and think, wow, he really must have gotten a hold of some sense of what zeal should be like. And he embraced it. And that allowed him to urge other people to embrace spiritual passion as a way of life. That, and, and even say it's really important. So he says three things here in this little passage about spiritual passion. He says, first, that spiritual passion is normal. And the next thing he says is, when he says, keep a glow in the spirit, he's saying that spiritual passion is sustainable. It is actually sustainable. It's not something that we just have to think of like a honeymoon season in our spiritual lives where we really felt close to God and we were really, you know, at this place of uh, joy in our faith and, and there was, you know, a, a deep well of love in our hearts for other people, for God. That, that Those things that characterize spiritual passion, which we can't explore all those, we talk about them on a regular basis here. But he says it's sustainable because he says keep a glow in the spirit so it must be possible. Then third, he says... Never be lacking in zeal. Keep a glow in the spirit, serving the Lord. And what he says there is that spiritual passion needs direction. That, that spiritual passion, even in, in sincere followers of Jesus, can be misdirected. And so it needs direction. So he, he, he says in that clause, serving the Lord. So let's look at those three things. Uh, spiritual passion is normal, as the first thing he says. He says, Never be lacking in zeal. That sounds like the normal Christian life is a life that's characterized by spiritual passion for Jesus. It's something that's supposed to be normal. It's not something... Sorry, sound effects at the wrong point. It's not supposed to be something that's uh, rare. Because he says never be lacking in zeal. And... Dr. Sherry Carter, I don't know if you've ever heard of her, but when she's asked what drives high achievers, she always answers, passion. Passion. Uh, John Maxwell, who a, a, was a pastor, he's a famous motivational speaker, New York Times bestselling author. Or he, he's well known uh, in his writings about leadership. Here's what he says. He describes passion as the fuel for our will. 
Passion turns have-tos into want-tos. He says if you want something badly enough, you will find the willpower to achieve it, and you won't stop trying until you do. And people recognize that passion is a good thing. Now, where it's directed is important to also recognize uh, something you have to deal with. But the whole idea of passion, when people have been burned by passionate people, they just tend to swing the pendulum swings away from the idea of passion as an important characteristic. But going further, in, uh, in Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, uh, God says this about himself. He says, God, oh, he says, truth is nowhere to be found, and whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene or to intercede. So his own arm worked salvation for him, and his own righteousness sustained him. He put on, and you might remember this passage in the New Testament, because it's, it's, a, it's based on this passage. It says that God put on righteousness as his breastplate. So when God saw the problems in the world, he... He saw the need. It says he began to equip himself like a soldier. And he began to gear himself up for a battle. And it's this whole picture. It's not gentle Jesus picking four-leaf clovers, right, in the ground. It's God getting stirred up because he sees injustice. And it says he put on righteousness as his breastplate so over his chest this this is what soldiers would do they would wear this armor and the helmet of salvation on his head he put on garments of vengeance and he wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak so one of the images of god and this is a consistent image in the old testament that the jewish people experienced was that god got stirred up especially when he would see certain circumstances like injustice. God would get stirred up and he would bring salvation. He would put on armor. So the the prophet had this uh, sense that God was saying to you, I want you to know there are things that really matter and they matter to me. And I don't just ignore them. I wrap myself in zeal and make sure that something happens. So you get the sense of God as God's serious. God's full of zeal. And in the New Testament, Jesus, who is God in the flesh, who's revealing God's heart to us, and we wonder sometimes, what's God's really like? You just look at Jesus. And there was a time where Jesus went into the temple, which was meant to be a place of worship. And actually, because of, as I've mentioned to you oftentimes before, where the temple was, was placed in Jerusalem... And where Jerusalem was placed was meant to become something for the nations to be exposed to. That God wanted himself to be revealed among a group of people. And everything that they did, not that they did everything right, but God wanted the world to see what he was like through those people. And so he had them build this tabernacle, which eventually they built a temple, a more permanent place of worship, 
But in that place of worship, it was a place where everyone in the world could come and see how do you, what is this God of Israel like that we've heard about who's powerful and good and he, he, he loves outsiders and the weak and he picks strange people to show his love to and he's just and he's so different than all the other gods in the world. Where can we find that God and how can we worship him? And so God created this worship sanctuary and the, the form of it in Jesus' day was the temple of Herod because King Herod had had the temple rebuilt after it had been torn down. And in that temple, without going into every detail of it, there was a court around the temple area called the Court of the Gentiles. And that's where all the Gentiles would go to worship. They could go and pray to the God of Israel and and they could learn how to, how to approach God, how to come into covenant relationship with him. Now, just the fact that God had them build that court in the design of the temple, it has to say something about his heart for the rest of the world. Because that's for us, right? We're the, the Hebrew word is the goyim. We're the Gentiles. God wanted not just the Jews to be in relationship with him. He wanted everybody. Well, early in Jesus' ministry and late in his ministry, Jesus went into the temple, into the court of the Gentiles, which, which enclosed the whole temple itself. So when you went into the court of the Gentiles, there was all these wide walls around you when you walked in, and then there was the temple itself. And God wanted these people to, to know what he was like. But what the Jews had done is they had built walls <laughs> that said, if you go past this point, you'll be killed. And then not only did they put these no trespassing fines to Gentiles everywhere, but they filled the court of the Gentiles with money-changing tables, and which there was nothing wrong with money-changing uh, per se, it was where it was happening because one of the laws that the Jews had to obey was you couldn't bring foreign money into the temple. So they weren't doing something illegal or even immoral. And then you, to, to come to the temple, you had to bring sacrifices. And so they sold sacrifices there. In fact, in particular, they, they were selling pigeons there, which was the sacrifice for the poorest people so that even the poor could come and bring something to offer as a sacrifice for their sins. But they filled all this up for the Jews because only the Jews could go in further, and it crowded out all the Gentiles. So you could get a few Gentiles in there, but it wasn't you know, very welcoming, was it? It's sort of like you, know, you, you tell guests, come over for Thanksgiving dinner, and they come to Thanksgiving dinner, and you've already finished. And you got some scraps, you know, you got a, like a half-eaten drumstick there and, and a, you know, a little bit of mashed potatoes and gravy left and it's cold. Well, that was what it was like. Jesus walked in there and as they say in Texas, he took names and kicked you-know-what. You notice I didn't say what he kicked. 
But you know the story. He overturned the money changers' tables, and he, it says he took a whip that he made. And if you ever, the whips that they made, it took a while to make them. So this was a very calculated thing. Jesus didn't just get in there and, and just hadn't had his coffee that morning, was in a bad mood. <laughs> he, he went in there. He saw what was going on. He went out, and that day he made a whip. And the next day he went in there, and he just he went in one end, and everybody else in the Gentiles' court went out the other end. Dragging their tables, and they were, you know, sore and scared. And Jesus, meek and mild, it says, his disciples remembered this Old Testament passage in Genesis. It says, zeal for your house will consume me. And the word there is house is oikos, which means household. So it wasn't the building. It was the people, the household. The household of the outsiders that God was inviting in. And so here we see zeal for inclusion. Do you see that? It's really re- A lot of times our zeal is for exclusion. The, the truth is, when everybody would come to that altar, everybody had sin to be covered. That's the difference. If you saw the movie, the, the movie Noah, Noah got that. You know, he knew we're going in the ark and we're as, we're, we're as guilty as the people who are, who are not going to be here. They just didn't have faith in God's mercy. And they didn't want to embrace, you know, a different way of life. But God, when everybody comes to the temple, they're all called to repent. They're all, everyone. But the Jews had got it in their heads that, oh, now we're really all the good people that there are. And the, and the Gentiles, I don't, we're not even sure God cares about them, even though we know he, he did. And so Jesus himself was incredibly passionate. And so how did Paul, how did Paul, this man who, when he started, the story of Paul begins about three years after the, the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. And, and he, is, he is this passionate, zealous Pharisee who believes that these, this new religious group of Jews, the followers of Jesus, are perverting the law of God and true faith. And so he sides with the religious leaders who killed Jesus, and he says, if you give me permission, I will lead a crusade against these people and I will put them in jail. We will have them killed. And they did. He hunted them down. The word persecute, the way that word was used, one of the ways it was used in the New Testament times was to hunt an animal to kill it. He was persecuting the church. Or it's also used as what an animal does to its prey. So when a lion would attack and consume its prey, that described what persecution is. And so Paul was persecuting the church. And, and when, when they would have uh, these sort of trials of Christians in their faith, like one of the church leaders, Stephen, Paul would stand there and he would preside over it because they said that they would put his, their clothes at his feet. That was a sign of his authority that he represented 
the, the leadership of Israel, and he would vote as the authoritative representative of the Sanhedrin that this person's faith was false, and therefore they deserved to be stoned. And so he was there when, one of the, the, when the first martyr, after Jesus, was killed, Stephen. Paul was standing there completely supporting it. I mean, that's, that's barbaric. And people have been lynched like that in metaphorically and other ways. But this guy was, he had a head of steam of hate and uh, zeal. You mix zeal and hate together, it's not a good mixture. And on his way from Jerusalem to a town called Damascus, which we hear of today, it's in Syria, on the way there, he's riding with a bunch of soldiers and, and Jewish leaders and uh, deputies to go and persecute the church in Syria. And Jesus appears to him and confronts him. And I'm not going to read you the story, just give you the brief version of it. Confronts him. And he goes, he, 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 this vision of, that, that he recognized was God <laughs> appeared to him. He fell off his horse and he says, when Jesus says, uh, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? That's what Jesus said to Saul. And he goes, who are you, Lord? And I don't think he knew who he was. I don't think he was sure. He knew this is God. God's challenging him about what he's zealous about and saying, your zeal is completely misplaced. In fact, you're not on my side. You're fighting against me. When you, when you persecute these people, you are persecuting me. That says something about how Paul's view of his theology of the church emerged later because he was one of the most profound thinkers about the church. And he says that we are God's body. We're now the body of Jesus in the world, as imperfect as we are. But can you imagine God calling us his body? And he's confronting Paul with that fact. And Paul's like, oh. And he goes, what should I do? And he said, go into Jerusalem and you'll be told what to do. Now, this is a guy that gives orders. He doesn't take orders. But suddenly, he's blinded. Literally, he's blinded. And for three days, he's fasting. And I'm sure he's praying and wrestling with this. What is this? What has happened here? And can you imagine? He has all this zeal and this energy. And then God himself confronts him. And God doesn't want to change. He doesn't want to strip him of the zeal, but he wants to change his heart, and he wants to redirect the zeal. And so he just is crushed for three days, and then God sends this, this nobody, which is another way of God saying something to Paul that, that became part of his theology later. God sent... Paul, this man named Ananias, who was a nobody. And he's not Ananias that was killed because that guy died before all this happened. But it was a common name. He came to, to, to Saul, because that was his name at that time, Saul of Tarsus. And he said, uh, Brother Saul, Jesus, whom you saw on the road, has sent me to lay hands on you that you would see and that you would be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
now, you know, stand up. And he stood up and he prayed for him. And it says it like scales fell off his eyes. And he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was baptized in the name of Jesus, which is, is as radical an event in church history as there's ever been because of the significance of that one guy. But he immediately went out into Damascus and began to tell people about Jesus. And immediately, this opposition arose because he was so persuasive. He was so gripped. Because all, all his great learning about the law, he saw Jesus fulfilled all of it. He began to tell them. And people began to want to follow Jesus because of him. And the religious authorities there couldn't let that happen. And so they decide they're going to kill him. Isn't this ironic? And he wasn't in any way creating the havoc and destruction he was. Now he's preaching the Prince of Peace, and they want to kill him like they wanted to kill the Prince of Peace. That's what happens. Now, how did this man change from this violent, aggressive persecutor to someone who preaches Jesus and preaches peace and forgiveness and counts himself among the people that he hated before. How does that happen? Well, when you meet the risen Jesus, it changes your heart. Just like Paul, you realize you don't have anything to stand before God and feel good about the way you thought. Paul thought, I'm a good man. I'm, I'm out for God. I'm doing the right thing. And he saw when he met Jesus, you, you aren't, Paul. You're not. You don't get it. I died for you. The fact that you hate the people who are my people shows you're not my friend. You are opposing me. That's a tough pill for anybody to swallow. That's the pill all of us have to swallow when we meet Jesus, when we hear the truth about the good news. Because the good news is not that everybody else is messed up and we're not. The good news is everybody's messed up, including us, but that God sent Jesus when he saw the mess that we'd made, and he said, I'm going to enter into that mess like the Old Testament picture. I'm going to clothe myself with righteousness and salvation and zeal, and I'm going to do something that nobody could do. Because he said there's, he saw that there is injustice and evil, and he saw no one could do anything about it. No one. Sorry. I don't know what I'm doing. That's what I'm doing. I'm trying not to move my head that way anymore. He saw, God saw our need, but he also saw our stubbornness. See, what Saul saw that we need to see, and it's hard to, to accept, is that we're not on God's side. We're not. We're not. None of us are as bad as we could be, but none of us are good the way we're meant to be. And Jesus came, and he showed zeal for all the good things that we didn't show zeal for, all the good that we're supposed to do that we didn't do, and all the wrong that we did that we shouldn't have done. Jesus was zealous for the good, and he was zealous against the, the wrong. And then he suffered and died in our place. The only one that could do it. The only one that could do it. Because God came himself in his son and said, 
I'm going to make a way for you to know me again and live in me. And so the life that Jesus lived, he lived this perfect life. And then, he, and then when he went and lived that life among people, they rejected him and that way of life, and then they killed him. That's what the cross was. It was execution. He was executed after he was tried and, and, and found not guilty. He was executed because of who he claimed to be, which was the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one from God. God with us. And they killed him. But his death in God's plan was the way that all of our sins could be atoned for. That he was our substitute. He was our sacrificial lamb. And the Jews understood that because they had a well-developed sacrificial system. And they understood that, that sin had to be atoned for. That God was holy in this temple. God was in this temple among them. But you couldn't approach him unless you resolved the issue of your sin. And your sin included the good that you didn't do as well as the wrong that you did do. And everyone has good that we haven't done and wrong that we did do. And we can't resolve either of those. And the Jews were taught that over and over and over. And every time the Gentiles would come into that that court, they would see them offering sacrifices. And once a year, they would offer this Passover lamb. And we participated in our, our version of that that Jesus inaugurated in the Lord's Supper. And God said, you can't, your sins are real. The, 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 the moral condition of your life renders you incapable of relating to me. I'm holy, you're not. You, I want you to be like me. You're made in my image, but you choose not to be like me. And so I've sent my son to do the thing that can help you want to be like me and empower you to be like me. And Paul was a perfect example. Now, he was an extreme example. We could look at Paul and say he was the worst kind of religious bigot and zealot that there, you could ever imagine. Maybe he would be the kind of person who would strap bombs to his body and, and walk into a school of children or take a gun and in the name of God kill those children or commit some other atrocity. He did that. He really did that. One of the leaders of the early church, the, the person who wrote that famous chapter in 1 Corinthians 13 about love that is marveled at across the world that is often read at weddings, love is patient, love is kind, love is gentle. All those ama that amazing exposition of love, he wrote that. But this is a man who was the worst kind of zealot, the worst kind. And it wasn't just that he believed in Jesus, because it isn't just whitewashing your past, but when you believe in Jesus, the life that he lived, the Holy Spirit comes to live in you and to live that life out. And the more you surrender to God day by day, the more of that life starts growing and blooming in your life. That's, and, and, it, and it's this joyful, amazing thing that happens. Again, not because of anything we do, but because of what he did on that, on that Roman cross 2,000 plus years ago. So Paul met that Jesus, and that changed his life. 
if we meet that Jesus and follow that Jesus and we're filled with his spirit, then that same zeal, that we, that, the, the same misguided zeal we might have will be turned. And a new zeal like Jesus' zeal to include, to love, to give, to forgive, but also to challenge. Jesus wasn't a softy on any of the moral disorder in anyone's life that he encountered. He called them on the carpet. But he met them where they were and then drew them to him. He didn't say, you come to me and then we'll talk. He always went towards them. But then he would challenge them in love. You know the, the, the famous story of the woman caught in adultery. She's, she's caught in this, really a trap to try to trap Jesus. And this woman comes in and everyone's there and saying, we need to kill this woman, execute her because she's caught in adultery. Adultery was a capital offense. And you didn't have to, but you could be executed for it under, under the law of Moses. And so they say, you know, the law says this, Moses says this, and they're trying to trap Jesus. It says he bends down and, and he has this exchange with them. And you know everybody's puzzled about him bending down. What was he writing? And everyone's always puzzling over what he's writing. The Gospel of John doesn't say, but what, what we know now, if, if, if we're wise, is this. That woman who's caught, and she had been committing adultery, she, was, she couldn't imagine a person more full of shame. And if you've ever seen shame on a person, here's what it looks like. Jesus bent down on the ground and got in her view. He got in her view. Do you see that? He didn't stand there with the other people and do that. He got down in her view. It doesn't say he said anything to her. I don't think he did. I just think he was identifying her with her in a way that had to be, like, amazing to her. Because then he stood up and he said, woman, where are your, after everyone left, where are your accusers? And she said, there isn't anybody. He said, neither do I condemn you, but go your way and sin no more. See, he doesn't condone sexual immorality, but he wins our hearts. But see, it was his reputation that took the beating there. Do you understand? When he said, I, can, I forgive you, he's taking, his reputation is the one that's taking the beating when he accepts her. God doesn't ever let us off. Our sin always costs something. And in God's justice, it costs Jesus his life. And so we either bear the penalty for our sin and we're separated from God, or we trust that Jesus bore that penalty. And when we entrust our lives to him, we're joined with him and we're accepted by God. Not on the basis of any good thing that we've done, but because of what Jesus did. Well, Paul experienced that. Boom! Boom! His heart began to change. He wasn't a perfect man overnight. I'm sure there was a lot of things to sort out. A person with that kind of sort of momentum in that direction, you don't just go, beep, I'm, you know, St. Paul. I'm sure he was, there was still a lot of rough edges, but something in his heart changed, and that's where, when we meet Jesus, that's what happens. And what we get, I say, is we get the beginnings of 
humble passion. Not just this raw, like, uh, steroid passion. It is this humble passion. That's the thing that Jesus embodies. He takes qualities that we can't ever bring together. Things that, you know, people tend to be polarized about this and about this. Jesus always brings things together and embodies them. And he says, if you follow me, you can embody what human beings can never bring together. And he did it here. That's the hope. But what, he, what Paul said next was, not, not only is passion normally says it's sustainable, because he told them, keep aglow with the Spirit. And what you saw in Paul's life was this invitation by Ananias, the guy who introduced him to Christ. He said, Paul, I'm going to lay my hands on you, and you're going to be filled with the Spirit. And that was a promise Paul, as a Jew, had treasured his whole life. Because the Messiah was going to come, just like John the Baptist said, when the Messiah comes, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. In other words, God, the God of your fathers, the God of the pillar of fire and cloud, the God whose glory was in the temple, the God who was with you know, the, the, the great heroes of, of, of Israel's history, the God who was just with everybody, when the Messiah came, that God's going to invade everybody's heart by his spirit invade their hearts. And at the end of this chapter in Isaiah 59, he says, the Redeemer will come, That the very next verse after I, where I stop, the, the Redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them. My spirit who is on you and my words that I have put in your mouth will not depart from your mouth or from the mouths of your children or from the mouths of their descendants from this time on and forever. There's this, the Holy Spirit's going to come. The Holy Spirit's going to come. Holy Spirit's going to come. That God is going to come and live inside people. And not just in temples and buildings. He's not just going to be with people. He's actually going to invade their lives. That's why you see a man like Paul, why his life could change. Because Jesus paved the way by his death on the cross for God and us to be reconciled. But only Jesus could have done that. So Paul tells them, Stay aglow with the Spirit. So thing is, most of us that have met Jesus, we struggle to maintain that spiritual passion. It's like it leaks, right? It's like you can, you can just, like when you go on a long trip across country and you watch the gas gauge just go, ooh, you can feel it. It's like something's draining out of you. Uh, and there are times you can feel so close to God. Now, I, most, you know, many of you here, that's, you know what that's like. You just felt this sense of, God's so real, and he's inside me, and I, I think different, and I act different. I'm not perfect, but, like, I'm making this progress. And then other times, you know, you, you stop, and you try to sense, where is God? Is God even real? Was he ever real? Is there a God, right? Do you have anybody not struggle with that? I struggle with it because we leak. That's what someone says. Why do we need to be refilled with the Spirit? Because we, we leak, and so Paul says we have to keep a glow in the word there, a glow. Actually, it's probably not the best translation. It means it's describing what it's like when water boils. So it's bubbling. It's hot. It's bubbling. But water, left to itself, just becomes room temperature, right? Whatever temperature the room is in, in which the water is in. But when you put energy into the water... The water begins to, the molecules begin to react and interact, 
and it begins to bubble. And it, the point he's saying is, we need to constantly, like we, when we take our pot of water and put it over the fire to heat it, we need to constantly put our lives over this and come in contact with the Spirit and be filled with the fire of God, with the presence of God. That that's, that's something we can do, we can experience. And I'd, I'd say more about that. I want, I want to say it at the end. That the question about that is, do you get that? That you need to constantly be filled and refilled. You have to stay aglow with the Spirit. That what hunger you'd experienced before and how you directed your hunger to pursue God, if you're not doing that, you're not going to be filled with the Spirit. God doesn't just come by and like 